Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Welcoming to the show, Nikhil Saval, uh, who is running in the primary election for the first dis- first Senate district, I believe is the one, uh, for the, the Pennsylvania State Senate, uh, who has also been uh, an editor of N Plus One magazine and, uh, you know, writer, sort of journalist type fellow uh, on the left for a, a number of years. And uh, yeah, welcome to the to the show, Nick. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, um, you know, ju- just to kick things off, uh, I, I thought you could, you know, what's interesting to me as a as a, f- a fellow writer is how you got the notion in your head of running for office. It's something I've kind of, you know, sort of half considered now and then, but I imagine it really takes a tremendous amount of effort to really make it happen. It, it does. I feel like actually the deciding is, is it, you, you decide and then you start to do the things, but actually the, the, the yeah, the campaigning is, is, is grueling, but you know, for me, it was actually, it may see, depending on what sort of side of my life you, you kind of, you, you may know me from if, insofar as anyone knows, as people know me, it's, it, it, it's maybe less surprising than it might seem. And, and so I, I've been a writer, you know, I'd say full-time since about 2012. I've been a full-time freelance writer. I was a graduate student. I worked in book publishing. You know, I always wrote on the side, but I've done that since 2012. And actually, about since about that same amount of time, actually a little before that, I've done labor and community organizing. So when I was in graduate school in 2009 in California, I began to volunteer with Unite Here, the Union of Hospitality Workers. So they represent, in San Francisco where I was, they represented almost exclusively hotel workers as well as um, workers at the airport. And then in Philly, when I moved here in 2011, I got involved with the locals here and they represented cafeteria workers in the school district, hotel workers, stadium workers, uh, people, workers at the airport. So it's it service workers, uh, you know, and, and just worth noting that most of them have been laid off. They're one of the hardest hit unions by the COVID crisis. So I've been involved in organizing for a while. And then in 2016, I was a lead volunteer in the Sanders campaign um, in South Philly, uh, launched canvases for my house for Sanders and for the South Philly part of the campaign. And then out of that, co-founded a progressive organization called Reclaim Philadelphia, which was meant to continue this work that we had been doing, the canvassing, all the bring together all the volunteers and and create an an infrastructure and an institution that would outlast any particular campaign. And so then I helped elect uh, Larry Krasner to district attorney here, to Elizabeth Fiedler to see representative in South Philly, Kendra Brooks, the first working families party candidate in uh, city council in Philly, or first independent candidate in, in, in modern Philadelphia history. And then I did a little, I did, I kind of channeled that energy into community organizing and, and party work and ran a bunch of uh, people for local Democratic Party office. I was elected ward leader in South Philly, which is like a party boss, essentially, of sorts. That's what you would refer to. It's a nice, yeah, cog in the machine. And um, and do you uh, hand out uh, turkeys and baskets of whiskey and and presents at Christmas time? So 
I, I can't, in fact, I have to answer with an unjoking yes, actually, I do. I do, in fact. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, actually, not, I was going to say you should start doing that. Not, not whiskey. We do, we have had, uh, that, I, no. that I should be doing. But, but, but yes, actually, we do do Thanksgiving drives and Christmas drives and toys. And I was Santa Claus. Do, do, you, hand out, do you hand out N plus one subscriptions along with the turkeys? Because that would be a cool innovation. <laughs> Just like... Yeah, we know the nonprofit rules are really strict, unfortunately. But no, yeah, so we, we, yeah, uh, not, sure. uh, but we, yeah, so I did that, you know, and so uh, basically we, you know, I've been involved in organizing in politics uh, for the entire time. And, and in a way I'm not, except for, I mean, N plus one has a lot of political writing, but my own writing is not always directly organizing related or even, you know, related to national or local politics. It's kind of, oblique to that. So I feel like I've kind of kept two sets of books, if that makes sense. And they've, in, they've informed each other. But so, so when I decided to run, we had an infrastructure in place. And I knew I could count on that. Um, and, it, and it wasn't that I decided it was, it was in some sense, it was posed to me as a question. And I wasn't horrified by the idea. And here we are. So <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, it seems like there's you know, writing is a pretty solitary activity, but uh, yeah, it's not surprising to me that 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 you you would have uh, some some sort of uh, side projects or alternative stuff going on that would sort of pave the way, you know, mentally and 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 logistically to make that happen. Um, but can you tell us? You know, I I am a recent um, uh, interloper into uh, Philadelphia residency. You know, not a true uh, patriotic uh, city of love cheesesteak eater. Um, and so I'm not terribly familiar with the district boundaries. Um, so so can you tell us, you know, approximately where is the, the first district and what sort of folks live there? So the first district is really the central district in Philadelphia, both geographically and in, in sort of commercial and political terms. Um, it has long been one of the most influential. And it, if for, I'll try to describe it for those who don't know Philly. Basically, it, it contains the downtown center city and it runs south uh, along uh, the eastern side of the city, all along the Delaware. So it's South Philly, what is normally considered South Philly runs up through Society Hill. So all of, you know, all the kind of federal era or colonial era monuments, Independence Hall, things like that, all of that is in the district. It goes up along the river into Fishtown, Kensington, what are called the River Wards. It has Fairmount, so where the art museum is. It has Chinatown. Um, It has a graduate hospital. So it runs river to river, school call to the, uh, to the Delaware. And then it runs in a, a strange way along Passyunk Avenue, which is one of the, one of the few kind of uh, diagonal streets in Philly, um, all the way Southwest across the Schuylkill River to the airport. So it contains all the, the sports arenas, the airport, the art museum. It's just, you know, it ha- and then the, City Hall, all the kind of major office buildings in the city, the two Comcast towers, um, which last we have two, and so it is. It is a uh, that's the district, and and the kind of important thing to note about it, besides its being, ge- you know, geographically, commercially, and politically the heart of the city, is it is 
it, it and it's hard to kind of describe, but it's without seeing it. But it, when once you see it, it's very clear. It's gerrymandered in a. It's racially gerrymandered. So, it's always been a safe democratic seat for modern Philadelphia history. So it's not gerrymandered for partisan reasons. It's gerrymandered to be whiter than it would otherwise be. So it cuts out yeah. uh, Point Breeze, which is uh, one of the largest black neighborhoods in the city. It cuts out parts of Kensington that are Puerto Rican, black, and uh, and actually uh, Palestinian. Um, so it it is it has been it is about sixty percent white. It was actually whiter than that um, for a time. It's grown less white. It's grown more diverse because of immigrants moving into Philadelphia, which is also the source of the city's recent growth. I mean, the city was declining in population for many years. It's now been growing. And so it has grown my di- more diverse, but but ultimately the district is whiter than it would it would in a more kind of rational or normal district line uh, plotting it would be. Right. Yeah. And uh, how many senators are there? I know there are a crapload of representatives. We had a, a Dempsey on who's running for the 175th, and that's like I think that's coterminous with part of your district, but like maybe a quarter of it. Um, so what's the number of senators? It's 50. So it's an even, it's not as kind of, it's not as enormous as the, as the house. And, and yes, the 175th is nested more, more or less nested within, uh, the Senate district. Right. So actually it seems like you're in a, a fairly similar position to, uh, uh, that fellow, um, who, you know, he's running as a lefty in a, a wider and richer part of the city and, um, you know, trying to sort of, you know, mobilize what maybe would be called sort of professional managerial class people, a lot of them, though I'm sure there's plenty of poor people in the first district. But like normally, I mean, you, I would presume that it was it was gerrymandered in that way to keep out you know, as many, you know, black people and poor people as possible, you know, just have a sort of like a base of, of support for, you know, the kind of like city bourgeoisie and the, you know, upper middle class. Um, you know, what, what is your perception of the sort of state of play there? Like, like who are, who are you trying to make inroads into, um, you know, the, the maybe some somewhat disillusioned or proletarianized professionals or like bring, bring in the, the poor people that still do remain or like all of those things. Yeah. I mean, that, that gets at, at the, the, the complications of the coalition that we're, we are trying to build. So prior to about 10 or 15 years ago, actually this district was fairly evenly split. And this was also, this was, this speaks to the kind of political or class fractions as well as the, as which are tied in with the, with the, with the racial gerrymandering. So it is, it was, yeah, professionals in center city and then who were then considered fairly liberal, right? Let's say 10 or 15 years ago, they would be the liberals in, in that terminology. And then there would be uh, South Philadelphia, which was largely, Italian American, Irish American, kind of in in the kind of social, you know, it was it was it was relatively more conservative, although not in all respects. It just was, you know, there was also there were sections, there was a lot of organized labor, the building trades um, have a have a presence in the district, and so 
it's, you know, roughly speaking, there was like a liberal quotient in Center City and a conservative, a, a more conservative or traditional quotient in, in South Philly. And, and the, again, these are crude categories that are just, but they're useful for explaining. And so Vincent Fumo, the senator for, for 30 years in this district before he was indicted on, a on, on like 139 counts of bribery and corruption, was um, <laughs> was the... But it, but it, I love Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's fantastic. He, he a, a very, a very significant figure for in in many ways, and w described it actually that he had he was unbeatable because he had bases in both in both uh, sections. So he had he had a liberal support in Center City, and he had conservative support in South Philly. And if anyone challenged him from the left in Center City, he could appeal to his, his more conservative base and then vice versa. If someone challenged him from the right, he would kind of rely on, and on, his, on his more liberal base in Center City. And so he... He was triangulating, uh, you might Indeed, say, indeed. Yep, there's the, there's the, it's the triangle. And so, so he considered himself unbeatable. The thing that has changed is that, you know, over several cycles of organizing and just you know, change in political change in South Philly in particular. Um, the district has, the Southern, the South Philly portion of the district has become more now in the current terminology progressive than Center City. And so actually the overall cast of the district has changed. And so that's where I come in. You know, I come from South Philly in a progress, and, and from that tradition of organizing, this is where Elizabeth Fiedler, who was backed by Reclaim and DSA and South Philly won, um, and so, so we, we, that's the kind of thing that we, that's the base as it were. And so we, but then we do have to, you, you are winning over, you are also winning over a coalition of people who are left out of the, or, or deliberately or, or kind of, or through benign neglect as, as someone might, you know, as, as of the like boom in center city. And then you have people who are younger and or just otherwise dis disaffected with the machine in Center City, and so the and the machine has essentially controlled the, the district for three state senate seats, including the incumbent. And so you're also running not just against, not just on a set of progressive values or or like a set of idea of ideas or ideals, but you're running on a, um, on a set of you're running an, an anti-corruption campaign, which I, I mean, I am. I mean, I feel like we're running against a district that has been historically corrupt. And that's the kind of case to make. And, and the, the incumbent looks uh, looks like another corrupt politician. Surprise, surprise, in fact. Right? <laughs> and and it, see, it seems that you have, um, I mean, it's, an, it's a nice way to turn out a lot of dissolution, disaffected voters, especially young voters, uh, for that very reason, right? Because you're you're offering a platform that is is truly leftist and truly liberatory and emancipatory, and and it's precisely that kind of energy it seems to me that would activate a lot of new voters who would finally see an opportunity to really put somebody in who's quite different from the machine and, and what they have to offer. Right. Thank you. Yeah, that is the that is the the pitch, as it were, that we are we you want someone in this district, and you have to also recast the district as the district, it should have a leading state senator. And then that the notion of what that leadership is, is encompassing of both of the platform of a Green New Deal for the state of a homes guarantee of universal family care and things like that. And also of integrity and, you know, and activity and just, you know, and, and genuine constituent service and community organizing. And I think that's, 
that will also encompass every part of the district and be inclusive. I think insofar as you, if you feel included and happy with the district and how it's going, it's going to be hard to dislodge you from, I mean, but even then, a lot of people just think, yeah, but we need, you know, they, they, they may be satisfied, but they're, they're clearly freaked out by climate change, you know, and you, and then do you, you, what, who is the person who offers the clearer vision and how to fight that? Who's the person who's going to be leading that when Democrats retake the legislature or, you know, or, or, you know, that's, that's also part of it. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that is the, that is the, the coalition that we're trying to build. And it is again, like it also is more diverse. Like it is like a coalition that there, the district is about 20% black. It has, it's, it's, uh, or it's, it has a number of, um, immigrants from Southeast Asia, from South Asia, from Latin America. Um, that is also the district that is also part of the coalition, because I think all of these, all of these groups, all of these constituencies are not part of what's going on in, of the, in, in the kind of like recent development boom in Philadelphia. They, in fact, they're, they're often not only excluded from it, but just hurt by it. Like it is, it is the source of the gentrification it is the source of, 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 of a lot of what's causing displacement in this in this district. Who is the uh, incumbent? Um, <clears throat> Alexi referenced something there. I'm I'm not familiar with, but but what's what's the story there? So the incumbent is Larry Farnese, who has been there since 2008. He was elected in 2008. He is a center city lawyer. He were a corporate attorney. He actually maintains a corporate. He maintains his practice. He's of counsel in a, a law firm in Center City while also being a state senator. So he has two jobs, effectively. And he ran in 2008 in a very competitive primary against John Doherty, who is, who is the head of the, who has the Electrical Workers Union, IBW 98. And um, and then another candidate, Ann Dicker, who was who actually at that point was like the progressive in 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 terms of good government, uh, you know, uh, sort of more left leaning um, candidate. And then he won. He won in that primary. He was backed by the outgoing senator, Vincent Fumo, who who was going to run for reelection, was indicted spectacularly, dropped out, backed Farnese. He won. He's never had a challenger since. And I would say that early on, he was he was actually he had he was an active state senator. He introduced some interesting legislation, um, and but then since has kind of uh, has not really emerged as a leading senator, and has done has has basically done a lot to cast himself as sort of the developer candidate. I mean, he 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 he's backed overwhelmingly by real estate developers. He received. Uh, several contributions last week just from the landlord lobby, um, which is, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, which is not, I, I would say my Everyone favorite. Everyone loves landlords. Yeah, exactly. It's just sort of like, it's an, it's a, but, but multiple contributions from big commercial landlords and the head of the landlord lobby. So that's his, that's a lot of his constituency. He does drive a lot of development dollars to the district, state money and state grant money. And then in 20, in, in the last four years, actually, um, he used campaign funds to, his own campaign funds to pay. So he's also a ward leader, 
um, he used campaign funds to pay for one of his Democratic committee people's daughters to study abroad. He used $6,000 to just pay for a scholarship fund for his committee person's daughter. And he was indicted by the Justice Department for this. Um, and that was for, bri- you know, for essentially buying votes. That was the, what the charge was. He was acquitted of that because he defended himself, this act as constituent service. And, and in fact, I mean, insofar as they couldn't prove that it was a vote buying scheme, it was, it's an effective defense. You can actually use campaign funds in Pennsylvania for virtually anything. Um, they've actually, there was a study in the Inquirer, like a piece in the Inquirer, Philadelphia Inquirer a few years ago, no, last year, actually, that was, that pointed out that you know, elected officials were using campaign funds to study viticulture in France. And, you know, they would, I mean, they would use their campaign money for this and it's legal. It just, there's just no limits on this. So this, so the indictment he's, this is the first time he's running since that indictment. He was acquitted, but I, you know, I, I, I don't think I have to make much of a case to say that it's not an especially sterling example of, of leadership in this, in this district. <laughs> Wait, I, you know, Nikhil, are, are you saying that his constituents didn't elect him to make daughters of rich donors more erudite and, and culturally savvy? <laughs> because I, I'm pretty sure maybe he ran on that. I don't it's, know. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a question. He's, I mean, I, I just, I feel that it's a, it's just not a, yes, obviously it's not a, not a strong, <laughs> strong play there, but, um, but, you know, it is, it's funny because it has been, I think this is another characteristic of the racial gerrymandering of this district and what, and what the expectations are of white politicians versus politicians of color. I'd say that if you were a black politician and had done this, or if, if you were me, let's, if I had done this, uh, you know, you would not be considered a candidate for political office again. Like, I just think it's one of these things right. that the, the expectations are, 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 lower on politicians on corporate attorneys of a you know certain class basically so now say what you will about the importance of study abroad i think it's wonderful <laughs> uh somehow i feel like i'm just saying you know it's a lovely thing in college uh your home's guarantee seems perhaps more uh more important for the people that you're, you're hoping to serve um maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I, I noticed there's a lot of great issues that you address uh but uh you know and ryan wrote a, a paper on social housing that um, that is very interesting too. I, I just think it's it's an under discussed policy issue that really really could help a lot of people. So so maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and I will just say that that paper on social housing was 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 hugely life changing for me. Actually, I thought I I remember reading that it's the paper with Peter Gowan, I think, and um, yep, and uh, Peter was one of the first people I reached out to when I th- started to think about housing policy, and then. Some of those homes guarantee. So there is a national homes guarantee platform that is inc- that incorporates some of that research into into social housing and and thinking about social housing as opposed to public, the American model of public housing, um, that you and Ryan and uh, and uh, Peter outline. And so the the homes guarantee proposal in in brief is essentially it's geared to you know it's it's it takes a lot of the elements from the national homes guarantee, but is geared towards Pennsylvania and 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 Philly. Um, in the sense that, you know, there, there are kind of three large tasks, I would say. I mean, one is expanding the stock of, of building more affordable housing, I would say, and then, um, protecting renters. And then third is a more, is more about land use designations and expanding the ability to establish community land trusts and things like that. 
And, and then there's a kind of set of other proposals that help existing homeowners and, and like with repairs and, and things that, which I think are, which would be hugely transformative, but they're, they're in some sense, they may seem smaller um, than those other plans. And so Philly is distinct from, you know, New York, let's say, or uh, I don't know, in, in other places that where that, where the perception, San Francisco, where the perception is that there actually is not enough housing being built or that there's not, there's simply the supply, it's a supply side issue with wh- whether you believe that or not is just, is, is not the case in Philly in the sense that there is actually a lot of just housing. There's a lot of housing stock. Some of it is in very poor shape. Um, and a lot of it is, is, but a lot of it is sort of affordable to, if you have a working class salary, um, you know, more than most places. But if you're, if you're, under that income level, it's virtually impossible to get good housing. The uh, the stock of public housing, uh, affordable housing, has is shrinking every year. There's a lot. It's just very difficult to keep up housing if you have it. Um, the rent burdens are extremely high, and so we try to build. We call it build, preserving, or converting. Uh, we've estimated a million units of housing, and that but you get there basically by preserving the housing that is affordable, that exists. And that's, you know, this follows the model of a, of the green, of a green new deal for housing, because it's also preserving and, and retrofitting and decarbonizing that housing. Um, we also believe we should just be building more affordable housing, um, which is, which you can do through state grant money, through, uh, LIHTC, any number of funding streams, the, the Pennsylvania housing finance authority is actually quietly building a few, some units of passive affordable housing, and then finally, just converting existing housing stock that is unused. There's just a lot of vacant land, empty houses. There are 25,000 vacant homes in Philadelphia. And so our, our proposal is to convert these, to, for, to have the city take hold of these houses and convert them into, in, into livable housing. So that would be 25,000 houses. We estimate that could be housing for about 125,000 people. So that's, you know, that's the kind of that's that's the the build the the actual housing supply component part of it and then the other side is the renter protections part which is that we believe we should have a system of rent stabilization or or control or whatever you want to call it across the state a right to counsel in the case of eviction um and a just cause for any sort of eviction proceeding and so before launching any eviction proceeding to protect renters, they're about it's not, it's fifty percent of Philly over fifty percent of Philly's Philadelphia residents are renters. About a third of Pennsylvania households, so that would be dramatic if we were able to achieve that. And we think the state is the place to do that. We've seen other states move on issues like this, and that's why you know that's one of the principal reasons I'm running for state senate is to advance a policy like that. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> just on my my street i noticed there are two vacant homes um one one of them is has been completely gutted and then was stopped because i think the uh uh, construction people didn't get the right permits and the other one is just boarded up um and it strikes me as kind of crazy to just let these perfectly good row houses just sit empty um because nobody's willing to you know take take them up um but this, I, w- I want to talk some more about your your some other policies. But uh, it occurs to me uh, before that that you know, were you to be elected, it would be pretty difficult to to sneak this sort of a policy by you know 
even the Democrats in the Pennsylvania Senate and and uh, House, um, and, and they don't they don't control either chamber. If I'm if I'm uh, correct about that, though we do have a Democratic governor now. Uh, you know what? What's your perception of the you know the sort of state of play uh, with regards to sort of poli- uh, partisan politics on the state level? You know, um, what do you what do you think the chances are of the Democrats being able to uh, take the legislature? And if so, you know, what's your sort of game plan to be able to try to move some of these policies or something like them uh, through the caucus? So you're quite right there. The Democrats are in the minority in both chambers uh, and they're in they're a beleaguered minority in the sense that there is a revanchist you know, red in tooth and claw sort of Republican Party on on the other side. I mean, that's that's true across the country at this point, but it's just worth noting um, that is it is just the the num the yeah. the kind of you know they I think the Republican legislature recently was trying to ensure that telemedicine there you know sneaking anti-abortion legislation into telemedicine bills. There's just like just to screw anyone in the in the in during this crisis. It's it's just incredible what they can. They'll try to do. Um, but I, so it is difficult. Like you're not going to, I, I, this, the, the point is that these plans are not necessarily going to be advanced in the current legislature. It is, it is, it is, but it is conceivable that the Democrats retake the legislature not necessarily both houses uh, this year or the next, you know, you know, but I think in two, four years, there's, um, there's about four seats in the Senate and I believe it's, I now I've, I'm going to get this number slightly wrong, but I think it's nine actually that needs to be flipped in the, in the house. And so those are, they're, di- that's not nothing. It's very difficult to flip seats, but it is possible. There is, they are, I think people have this, the, the Senate is not, you know, I, I don't know that the Senate, for example, is focused on my primary because it's a safe seat. They're focused on flipping seats. And so my idea is that when you retake the legislature, you need leadership in the state Senate and you need a program. And this is part of that program is advancing a, a, a green homes guarantee. And so it's and it's already started to happen in the in the state of this primary in the way in the way that things do, which is that the Senate leadership introduced major housing legislation um which which does you know it has it does try to expand funding for for affordable housing and things like that principally so i think this the incumbent state senator could co-sponsor it and be a housing person and 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 things like that so there is there's renewable energy legislation that was advanced and and again um the the incumbent state senator signed on and called himself a green new dealer and you know things like that so there's just there's that's that that is starting to happen just due to the primary challenge and so in, as we've seen in other bodies, seeing where a, a particular kind of political figure gets in backed by social movements and with some attention paid to the race, it can actually start to change the conversation within the chamber. But, but really practically, there's actually a lot of leeway in the way that state government works in Pennsylvania, where you can direct a lot of state grant money. So Pennsylvania just has the state grant program. It's not loans. It's not... Uh, tax credits, although they have those too, it's just for development projects called the uh, Redevelopment Capitalization Assistance Program. And it in this district, which I'm running for, 
it's it attracts those development dollars like nothing else because it is it contains center city and and you know it contains the downtown so actually a lot of money has gone into that district and the state senator has leeway in advocating for or blocking some of those projects mostly that's gone to commercial real estate and luxury hotel development the w hotel in center city got about 25 million dollars in a single grant um the second Comcast Tower got about $25 million also in a single grant. These are like essentially no strings attached grants. I mean, they have some sort of numbers attached to them about job creation and things like that, but they're not, you know, they, op- there's a lot of opacity in how they're handed out. But essentially, that's the state senator can help in that process and do a lot. And that's what, and so, so Senator Farnese will, exam- for example, say, I've brought a billion dollars to this district. And he's not, he's not, totally wrong like he did have a huge hand in saying that like in doing that and so similarly you can if if you're a state senator you can say well where are those dollars going and what are the real priorities and needs of the district should it be the case that we get comcast gets an a rack p grant of 20 or rcap grant of um 25 billion million dollars when we have schools closing across the region for lead and asbestos you know or that you, you people are raising money to fix their local playground. I mean, like, why is that the case? And only $14 million, going back to the housing question, only $14 million has gone over 12 years to affordable housing. So it's about 1,500 units. So it's not very much. And so having an advocate for housing in that seat would be a big deal, I think. And it would change the, it would help change the, the, the priorities in the district. Because it's not just what you it's the, it's these things are getting built at the expense of those other things. We have to think about the the nature the the shape of the Philadelphia skyline as reflecting the priorities of this state senator and and the, and who he f- is close to and who he fraternizes with. It's not coincidental I think that a lot of the people who get these grants are also major contributors to the senator's campaign. And so it is it resembles kind of quit uh, pay to play sort of models in 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 that we, everyone is familiar with, I think. And it's it. Are, are you saying there's a there, is there a correlation between the skyline and the number of study abroad daughters that go abroad? <laughs> is there, do you think this is like a one to one? Would you say it's it, that's exactly that's exactly right. Yes, that's. That's, that's what I'm proposing. One Comcast Tower, <laughs> one uh, one study abroad program. It's, it's, uh, I mean, that's just responsible government right there. <laughs> can, can you give us even more concrete examples of? So, so let's say you have the position. Congratulations, you did it. Uh, what what would it look like in in the room um, w- with you in the room in terms of like we don't need to pass legislation. We don't need actually to have a bipartisan consensus. You are able to just shift the allocation of certain funds from, from the grants. Uh, could you just g- give us even more detail about like what that would look like? What what might be instead of a new Comcast tower or instead of like the, the W hotel uh, getting a huge subsidy, you know, what, what would that look like if you were there? Well, so, you know, for example, the, um, I think I mentioned this briefly, the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Authority, which is just the state state housing arm, has actually been channeling funds to build no carbon or, you know, passive affordable housing in South Philly. I think they last, they built about 44 units of this. And it's just one of these things that is not spoken about. It's, it seems to be a kind of experimental program. I myself have have not talked to anyone there about it but it's just one of these things that is i would i would 
drive, I would try to drive in. So the, 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 so a lot of these grants are hashed out in budget season. Like they, you get a, you, you can kind of write letters to the governor. You write like essentially the, the, the way it acts, the way it technically works is the governor gives a thumbs up or thumbs down to certain projects. Um, but between the project applying for the grant and the governor giving the thumbs up or thumbs down is the, is the state senator at some point. And so the state senator being an advocate is hugely influential on whether in, in budget season, Philadelphia gets its grant money and where that grant money goes. And so I would, I would help channel it to this, to, to, to housing in particular, I would help channel it. There's ways that schools in particular which have, uh, Philadelphia has a major issue, and this is not unique to Philadelphia, but has a major issue with um, lead and asbestos remediation in its schools. And you can get, technically the way the program works is the grant money can go to friends of groups or nonprofit arms attached to the schools, uh, which not are not always the best things in terms of school funding, but but they could they could do lead and, re- and asbestos remediation. They could keep our, they could keep children in the schools safe from getting sick, teachers. But then also, I mean, we've proposed a, a Green New Deal for our schools because we believe that schools infrastructure is also important to be preserved. It needs to be more than remediated. It needs to be resilient and it needs to be, you know, to mitigate against the effects of climate change. We need new heating and cooling systems in them. They can be anchor institutions for a neighborhood. Um, so we that there's more to be done that's that's that I think is creative with with our school buildings as well. So like those are the kinds of things that you could drive money to recreation centers, things that are just public institutions. Um, that's what I that's what I start to see is as the possibility here. It's it strikes me that you know there there is some consonance between you know the 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 viewing this pot of grant money is you know just trying to like give it to your campaign contributors and trying to give it to your you know d- dole it out to like the constituency as a whole you know like like the people who who need it most in the district but who are also you know voters and presumably you know would would have some appreciation for um you know, uh, uh, a nice benefit and a new playground or, or getting the lead and asbestos out of schools and stuff like that. Um, such people maybe would be more likely to, to vote for you again. Um, and, you know, obviously you don't want to do that in a like completely corrupt way, but it, it, it's, it struck me more than once that, uh, you know, the, the old days of like Tammany Hall machine politics were not they they had a lot of differences with the way machine politics is conducted now um and that you know insofar as there was corruption in the Tammany Hall days people tried to spread it out over a much larger number of people and so i'm wondering if you you know in your interaction with sort of like the democratic machine in philly and in the state if if you've had any sort of purchase with that kind of argument to be that like, hey, you know, like Comcast is not the only voter in in the in the state, you know, like there are other people who also have the franchise and we should try to cater to their needs, you know, in a way to sort of establish ourselves, you know, and and, um, you know, bring in the votes, so to speak. Um, is that is that resonating at all? Do you think? 
Yes. So it is, it is resonating and it's, and the reason it's resonating is actually because the machine is, is, is not a kind of consolidated entity in, in Philadelphia. And I, I do think of Philadelphia as one of the last big city machines or just in, that is, you know, fairly intact and can field a slate of candidates and get those candidates to win and then guarantee jobs and elections for, you know, judges are elected in Pennsylvania, we should remember. And so a lot of what the party does is get judges elected and, and it doesn't win every time. And, but it just, it has a fairly, you know, fairly serious capacity to do it. it. It's declining, but it is, it is nonetheless to be reckoned with. And so, but it ultimately is just negotiating against many different regional machines. So there's like a Northwest black machine, which is itself has a few components, but just like, you know, there's like a South Philly um, building trades machine. There's like a, you know, there's a Northeast building trades machine. There's, there's like all these different entities and they're always angling for things at any given point. And so right now, the party itself, the official Democratic Party, in many ways, is supporting the incumbent state senator. But we have the we what is unusual, I think, for like a left wing candidate is we we've received the support of two major building trades unions, and that's um, local ninety eight, the electrical workers, and the laborers district council, which is the major, the only majority black section of of the construction unions, and. So, you know, and then we've, we have ward leaders who are supporting us. Uh, we have some support in Southwest Philly and in, uh, in some of the black sections of the district. So we've like, we've, we've kind of made inroads, I guess I would say. And um, part of that is, is on this appeal. Exactly. It's like we, it turns out, I mean, I'm a, I have a labor background. I'm a labor candidate. So I'm not like, I'm not, I'm a solid vote on those issues. And uh, or at least a, a person who will call you, you know, and like bef- before voting against you. And so that that sort of that's like I think that's I mean, that's actually goes a long way. I mean, it doesn't mean that there isn't I'm simplifying matters, but you do you you're I guess, uh, you know, stepping back for a bit. Yeah, you you do want to like you do want to point out when when it fe- when it seems like a machine candidate um, is largely corporate backed or is not really serving the the diverse the the largest number of constituents in their district, or you can make that case effectively. You can then win sections of the 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 machine to your side, and so you know. I guess I feel like, even though I'm anti-corruption, I'm anti-machine in a kind of crude sense. Like in 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 broad ways, yeah. The machine, you know. There's your when you look more closely, there are things there there are common interests there there things to be had. There are like meeting, there are places to meet people. And especially that ground is, is labor and organized labor. And I think that's where, that's where I, I'm most at, at home, I think with, with the so-called machine. So it's like, it's like in Terminator 2, where there are two different machines, but one wants to kill everyone and the other is Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and he's the union guy. That's the good machine. And sometimes, no, but really, so, so you have actually, right? Like you, what I love about leftists, um, generally is the integrated vision, which is we want to help people that are suffering. And that's an integrated thing. So we want them to have an education. We want them not to, you know, be poisoned by asbestos or lead. We want them to have homes to live in. And then when, when you talk about uh, employment and unions, you're talking about how do we balance, you know, 
power as against the capitalist class. And so proposing uh, support of unions and ending at will employment, I think, is a major thing, because when you piece together these different kinds of policies, you can see that within capitalism, there's a way forward for your average person to to survive and even thrive. So maybe speak a little bit to that. Was that part of how you were able to get some of the trades on on your side uh, because of of how you are offering a platform and, and leadership that really does support kind of everyone. Yeah, I it I think it has to do with it with the two things. I think there's an ideological component and there is just a a a, pow- a component that is is the power that we've built up over time. I mean, so ideologically absolutely. I mean, I think there's just there's there's no question that I mean, you know, I think there there are things that happen, which is that I have a background in organizing with Unite Here and Unite Here is one of the first uh, unions to, in fact, was the, our first endorsement. They endorsed us on the day we launched the campaign. And that's very unusual anyway for a union to go against an incumbent. But for Unite Here, basically $50 million in non-union hotels have been built with this, the the state grant money that I've been talking about. And so they've got, they're like, well, we have no relationship with this state senator. He's been going against our members and the potential for growing our membership for the last 12 years. So we, th- this is existential for us. We need a change in the seat. And so having one of our own in this seat, someone who completely understands these issues is what, is what we need. And they have, and he's, and he's viable or, you know, you have the capacity to win. So I, I think the fact that I, that vote of confidence from an actual, you know, not because I think you can be ideologically pro-union, but having a particular union in your corner that other people are cool with as well um, means that then other it starts to you need and then over time if people start to see that your campaign is viable and you're winning people over that that's what matters and then over you know with reclaim Philadelphia we've won we've gone up against particular actually you, you know union back back candidates and won um not and but then people are like oh well actually the candidate who's won is fine like they're an, they're not anti labor they're pro labor they're probably more pro labor than some of the like uh you know yuppie candidates that might otherwise be fielded against us and like and so um i think that's also and so seeing that like proof of concept as it were over time they then like they they're ready to they're ready to do it and so i think you know like the most progressive one of the most progressive council people in Philadelphia, Helen Gim won in 2015 with partial support from the building trades. She's re- she received it again in 2019. So there's not, it's not like a, there's, there's also a recognition of wanting to be allied with, it's not, you know, I think with, with people who are basically solid, solid labor people who, who, who have, who can win. Right. And like, I think that's, that's essential. And then in this case, there's just been things that the incumbent has, has done that have not been salubrious for labor. So, for example, Hahnemann Hospital, uh, <laughs> which is a slightly more national story. It's yeah, but people it it's, yep. it it was serving um, a majority minority working class population in the dis in the district. It closed in. It was shut down um, because of a private equity titan it ran it into the ground, um, and it was a huge scandal, and. The state senator, it's in the state senator's district, 700 employees of the lo- of AFSCME 1199C, who are the hospital maintenance staff in that building, were laid off. And that's the state senator never contacted, you know, the head of that union or anyone, members of that union until a few months ago, 
when he was running for re-election. So that's not a way to endear yourself to a major, you know, a union that has 13,000 members in the state, 1,000 members in the district, a largely black union that is also in the nursing homes right now that has members dying. Um, and you're, you know, if you're like, well, this state senator actually is not really around. Like, I, I, I kind of, I hate them. <laughs> like, that's like, and so they're going to, that's, that is motivating, right? And that's, and then it's like, well, there's this other candidate who is, who is like, who all these labor, uh, all the, my other labor allies say is totally solid. And so like, and, and, you know, it like about, it's not, this endorsement didn't come early. They actually endorsed us last week, but they're like, they now see that this is like a serious campaign and they want to be with us and, and think it is important. And if you haven't had a relationship with the incumbent that you like before, you're not, you, it can be a, a you can think, okay, I actually want to try something different here. So that's how I, I read it. So it's, it's um, I think it's less the particulars of the platform um, and more the kind of general like sense of, of someone being a, a solid labor person. Um, You've got a number of um, uh, other interesting proposals that I've been reading about. You, you've got something on tax reform, um, SEPTA, and, uh, and you mentioned the Green New Deal uh, also, but can can you go into those in a little bit more detail? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, and a lot of these are not. I would say, you know, they or they're they're the the, the tax proposal is not specific to my campaign, but it is. Um, it is. It isn't. It is a proposal that is that there are there two sides to it. So, I would say that one. I think Pennsylvania just we should, you know is one of the taxes at a much lower rate than most of its neighbors, including Ohio, right? Comparable states. So not just, not just sort of, uh, you know, blue states, but just other states that are, that are similar. And, and one of the, and one of the reasons it doesn't is actually has like a, a flat tax, essentially a regressive tax in the state constitution, the uniformity clause, which prevents you from, um, taxing different classes, you know, at, at, at graduated rates. So for example, you can't tax residential property at a different rate that you tax commercial property. So you have to tax Comcast and your average row home owner at the same rate, which is ridiculous. And so it's, it's one of these things that a lot of people have wanted to repeal. But so one of our tax proposals is to, is to create, and it, or one of the things we've adopted is to create a, a tax. You can, you can tax wages and interest at a different rate as taxing income from wealth. And so you would lower a ta the, the state tax on late wages and interest and raise a tax on income from wealth. And that would actually lower taxes for most people and generate about $2.2 billion a year on this, on this proposal. And it would be, you know, it'd be more equitable than the current tax system. The other side tax idea, and this is, this also comes from the Pennsylvania budget and policy center or just, or conversations is regional tax sharing. So to fund SEPTA, which is a regional system, but is deeply underfunded and relies a lot on fares. I mean, the left has a lot of proposals for free fares, um, but so we're not even close to that with SEPTA because it's like 50% funded by fares. So we're not even, and it's, and it, there's tolls and there are various ways that it faces fiscal shortfalls. So we would one idea is to reduce, there's a non-resident wage tax. If you don't live in Philadelphia, but you work in the city, you pay it, you pay a tax for its or commuter tax. Even you could lower that and then also 
and then but then because everyone relies on SEPTA, maybe raise taxes for a regional fund that would come from all that come from the not just Philadelphia, but the region around Philadelphia. And um, and then that might go to funding SEPTA. It's it's speculative, I would say, because it actually, you know, I haven't I don't know how much this pencils out, but it's it is one way that you can do tax share. You can you can raise money for things like that are held in common. The arts are actually another thing that you could kind of fund through this system. So because people come into the city to go to the opera or to do things like that. And you can fund, and so it's just you can you can use regional taxes to fund the arts, and so the so those are those are those are two of the kind of tax side things, and then the Green New Deal proposal is is a suite of proposals that that include transit, expanding our transit system. There's the housing component, which we've already talked about, which is greening our housing, and then um, and and moving off you know a broader transition off of fossil fuels. But the kind of main, I, one of the main ideas that is. I think maybe novel to our plan is is a lot of the decarbonizing of infrastructure that we want to do because we believe that just is a source of made of jobs and it is something that's happening elsewhere. So getting natural gas out of out of buildings, which is so not just affecting, not just trying to to develop alternative sources of energy, but getting our existing commercial real estate and housing stock not to rely on, on fossil fuels. Like that would just that would start to it would start to affect the demand side for um, for fossil fuels in a in a state that is the third largest extractor of new oil and gas um, in after Canada. So it's it's I mean this is these are big proposals, but we need. I think one of the thing one of the things that animated it, and this was pre COVID, um, and this was working with a lot of kind of green kind of bigger thinkers on the Green New Deal side, Daniel Aldana Cohen, who's a sociologist, um, Billy Fleming, who's a landscape architect, um, they, who, have, who are two of the major authors of that green stimulus that's been circulating recently. The idea was like, mm-hmm. we're going to hit a recession at some point, and we, need, we know what happened in 2009. We need shovel-ready projects um, so that we can we can direct stimulus money. States are important. We need those states to to be directing those stimulus project funds to green projects and green remediation projects, cleaning up brownfields, whatever. Um, we didn't expect that that would happen this way. I mean, that, that this would be the. Res- I mean, no one did, of course, but we were not right, coming into right. this. But it just it speaks to the fact that there was some foresight around this, and now it's. And so you know when you read things like that green stimulus plan that that has been going around. It comes from the fact that people were thinking about this actually quite ahead of 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 this particular crisis. But um, that's where that's a lot of the like thinking behind our Green New Deal plan is both that Pennsylvania is important. Um, it is a, a fracking state. It is, you know, but it is also it, we also expected a crisis. And so we needed to we needed to plan ahead. Yeah, for sure. This maybe is outside your wheelhouse. Uh, maybe more of a city council question. But uh, who do I complain to to get some street sweeping going on in Philly? <laughs> street sweeping. This is uh, we were gonna have it actually. There, Ken, Mayor Kenny promised this year in his inaugural address that we were gonna have street sweeping in in Philadelphia. Although that happens every so often. So Philly used to have street sweeping. Uh, and then it was ended in 2008. You actually will still see signs here and there that are like, move your car, like, cause there's all, you know, it's, there's street cleaning or, or something like that. And it, um, it just has not, 
existed for for a while in any real way. It's the only major city that doesn't have it. Um, it is a common feeling. We should have it. And I mean, there is there like you, you, it needs funding. You needs a dedicated source of funding. And right now the city, what does it do? It, it abates tax property taxes for 10 years on any new construction or any building that has been repaired in some way. So like, where does it's like giving up money all over the place. Um, but then, you know, I think things like this, things like getting state funding, like more dedicated state funding, like through reforming our tax system, um, all of those would make it easier to get some street cleaning in the city. The city needs, needs, needs more funding. It's, it's on ice though, right now because of, uh, what, what is the relationship, uh, between the state Senator? Like, how would you talk to, um, you know, Helen and and the others on the city council and, and, and work with them in terms of coordinating your political activities? That's something that it just occurred to me as you, as you describe this problem, um, might be useful to do for, especially for leftists, uh, that, that have the kind of privilege to serve their constituents in, in overlapping ways. So, so how, how might that work? Have you thought about yeah, that? Yeah. So it's, it's, there's, there's two, maybe two sides to it. There's the, there's the direct constituent service side. So, um, you want, you work with your district council person, or you work with city council people to get services to people in your district. And sometimes those services are, are best served through the city. And sometimes they're served through the state. So actually there's like a home repair program that is actually is 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 pretty means tested and parsimonious and and is goes through the state but nonetheless it's it's a state program and so you'd work with like your constituents call various offices the state senator or state representative works with their city council person and you you kind of negotiate how you help someone that happens a lot i think that's a lot of the work actually and um and actually what's been the case for recently is that is the state, the current state senator's office is not considered very diverse. And so uh, it it has been alleged, and we have not proven this, so it is alleged that he has never had a black staffer in his office for for many years. And it's been said enough times to me that I feel comfortable repeating it, but it's not, we should be clear that it's not. um, But it's, it's, so there, you know, there's just a lot of people who feel left out of what's going on in 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 this office. But the other thing is, we, um, we, we, so there's that side of it, but then there's also just like the policy side. I think there's, you just, you, you try to, you try to support, um, you try to support what the city is doing at the state level. A lot of it is about preemption. So the state is always trying to preempt legislation that Philly passes, whether that's paid sick leave, that's, um, whether that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's actually, you know, it makes it very difficult to raise the minimum wage in the city or to do kind of wage to do to do things in any particular way that would help Philadelphians. Um, the domestic workers rights bill, fair work week, there are all these bills that are are constantly threatened by the state. And so the state senator's job is to fight for them and to fight for Philadelphia in, in many ways. And so coordinating with city council or making sure that state funding is available for city council initiatives. That's what you do. And so working closely with state, with city council people is essential. Um, so that would be exciting. I mean, it's like a, it's on the constituent side or on the, I mean, on the legislative side. But. Absolutely. I mean, because Philly Philly's had a, a great, you know, a number of candidates who've been successful lately uh, from the left in, in the city. So it's, it's really, I think, a great opportunity to make inroads, right? 
Yeah, I mean, like Larry Krasner, the district attorney, he's constantly being threatened by the state, including by Democrats, to be clear. Sure. Like Josh, Josh Shapiro, the attorney general, uh, has tried to preempt, helped pre get some legislation preempting some of the gun, uh, the way that this this district attorney was uh, was dealing with gun cases, gun possession cases, things like that. I mean, you need you need an advocate and on the state level, um, and so that's that's. That's what that I would be one of them. Basically, I would be one of the leading ones. I have just one more question for you. Um, what would be your advice to anyone who uh, is maybe where you were, you know, a year ago or something? Uh, someone who's considering a run for public office of some sort. You know what? What are your sort of pro tips for you know getting into the game? Interesting question. I, <laughs> I guess it, you know, it would be interesting to, to have me to ask me this question after June 2nd, but actually, because at, at the current moment, I guess I feel, since I do feel that we have run, you always have, you know, regrets and qualms and stuff, but I do feel that we've run the campaign that we want to run. I would say start early. I mean, I, we started exploring in July and, you know, but maybe I would start earlier, actually. I don't know if that's, it's, I mean, if we win, I would then say, no, we started right on time. It was great. But like, I, I didn't, it was, it was fine, you know, but, but you do, you have to raise so much money, right? I think there's just no way around it. And I think it's not, there's like a certain charm to the ramshackle nature of, grassroots fundraising but it is in it is grueling you like have to we've raised over three hundred thousand dollars which is in a in partly you know it's and a yes over five thousand contributions fifty eight dollars the average contribution all of that stuff like we've done we've done it in a way that we are comfortable with we haven't taken money from real estate developers fossil fuel companies pharmaceuticals whatever not that we've been offered to be clear but like we've but i would be it would be nice to reject it but so that's just a big part of it. And knowing that you have a building up that infrastructure, like an alternative fundraising infrastructure. Like I, I, I one have, and you know, I, we have that after several years of running candidates, you know, people who have donated to other left-wing causes who are, who are ready to support a, a state Senate candidate in this, in this instance, and to call them, that's just a lot of the work. And so, um, building that over time and, and it may not it like, and, and knowing that you have that, I think is, is important. Um, because if you don't, you can't pay a staff, you can't feel, you can't run a field program. You can't do, you just can't do the things that you want to do. Um, and you want to pay people a living wage and you want to pay health. We have health and went, we have a unionized staff, right? We have like, and so, um, so that's like, that's a big part of it. And then, uh, I would say that you have to like it. I like it, I guess. Like you have to you have to try it out and know that you like it because it takes and I'm burnt out in various in on in uncertain days and it's I because we've been doing it for a month, you know, a couple months longer than we expected because of the extended because of the crisis. Right. They postponed the election date. And I miss I mean I'm doing it differently, but nonetheless a lot of it is similar in the sense I'm on the phone all the time and there's just like so you have to like it and you have to, um, and if you don't, it's, it's not 
don't do it. <laughs> like it's not, it's, you have to actually like being out talking to tons of people constantly and shuttling between places relentlessly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I do, it's very draining, but it's, you know, I do, I did, I do like it. I do miss that part of it. Actually. I do miss that part is we haven't been able to do it. So those are the, those are the things, but I, I would, and then having, but ultimately like having an infrastructure that is separate from your campaign infrastructure. So all of the candidates who have won in Philly have had a, a, a group of institutions reclaim Philadelphia to some degree, you know, the, there's the, the, the DSA and the, and Lilac, the working families party, uh, progressive labor unions, like knowing that you can call on that kind of group on that, those groups of people and they represent constituencies and volunteers who will come out to support you. That's what, um, you need to be able to call on that. You can't just build, I mean, some of that has been built through campaigning and through work. It's like, it's not one, you can't quite come, have one come before the other, but now that we have that, it just makes this so much more, you know, and then you, and then the point is that you expand it. We've expanded it now with this campaign and whether we win or lose, we have a different infrastructure than when we started. We have more, we had over 400, we had nearly 500 individual volunteers on the campaign. Um, it probably helps to have been involved in organizing for a long time and to have been interested in, in, in helping and serving the communities you're, you're a part of, uh, because then you build those relationships and have those institutional ends uh, because of that service and because of that involvement. And so for those that are considering running, they, they might be those very people that have been involved already in various ways, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. They're, I mean, they're the people who have worked in, in Reclaim Philadelphia, the, the, the members of Unite Here who have been hugely involved and um and so like because they also come back week after week we had like a consistent even in the deep in the depths of like the crisis first after it hit and we weren't on the doors and we weren't doing you know phone being on the phone initially felt like a real loss after not after knocking doors for so long because you you just feel it to be inferior but we had 50 volunteers who would come back week after week who were committed to the campaign and so that's just essential. It's essential to, to have that. And so the other thing is that is, I don't know how much this has played into it is just like, is actually being a magazine editor. I don't know that not everyone can just be a magazine editor, but it's helped on, it, it's helped with, um, it's helped with the policy side. I would say that like, you actually have to, as a magazine editor, you're always like, you're, you're dumb about most thing most things and you get essays written on topics that you don't know anything about or you couldn't possibly write yourself but you have to become semi-expert in them and literate in them and ask lots of questions until you can speak about them confidently to your writer and so that that skill has actually been i unexpectedly useful in just the the like policy side of campaigning being able to speak about a lot of different things with some confidence or ability and also to be like actually i don't know like when you have to, when you really don't know the answer. Um, so that was like, I don't know, that more than, more than actually writing, more than being a journalist, being an editor was like, has been more useful. And then, you know, and then your writers, they're ready. If they liked your editing, they're ready to support you. We have a lot, a lot of my writers, <laughs> a lot of my writers are, are making calls for us right now. It's pretty, it's, that's pretty cool. So. That's awesome. Your, your campaign is, is working its butt off. And I know this in particular because somebody messaged me on Facebook like a week ago. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm already on board. Oh, you know? cool. <laughs> like, don't, no worries. 
um, but yeah, no, being a, a Nikhil of all trades, as it were, doesn't hurt, right? <laughs> being humble and, and, and being, <laughs> being involved in, in understanding all the different things that affect people. That's, that's pretty awesome. We're really, really glad to have you on and excited for your candidacy. Uh, how, how are you feeling right now as, as, uh, you know, you're throwing this, this kind of curveball with the extended campaign and with being on the phones and all that. But how, how are you feeling kind of heading into June 2nd? I mean, we feel good. You, you actually, you get into, you know, we, we outlined a scenario that we were going, going into this campaign that was pessimistic, but that still provided a path to victory. And pessimistic in the sense of having no institutional support, virtually no labor support, having some progressive support, but basically relying on volunteers and, you know, grassroots fundraising and all that stuff. And what, and we had goals and plans and all of it. And we've exceeded those in the sense that we have gotten, we have, we've built a, a pretty broad and diverse, like labor community, progressive environmental coalition. That's pretty unique, I think, to this, to our but among left-wing candidates to let in Philly to like our campaign and like um, in, and certainly in this district. And we've made thousands of phone calls. We knocked lots of doors before this. We have some, we have uh, people interviewing us on podcasts. You know, it's like, it's just, it can't be, it's like, you know, it's the dream. It's going to push you over the edge. You're going to get the left anchor. Yeah, Farnese is not going on the podcast. I think it's just like, we, we feel we feel, we feel good. And then on the, you know, people are excited on the phones and like, we have a lot of support and it's just, there's a lot that is up in the air and it's obviously we're running against a 12 year incumbent. And so you just never, you, you, one is hard pressed to say, yeah, great. We're going to win. Like, but we feel, um, and it's, and you know, there's this vote by mail option. How, how are people going to show up at the polls? Like there's just all these unknowns and, but we're planning for all of them. This is not our first election. It's maybe the biggest that many of us have done. Um, but we've we've been able to, you know, we've been able to 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 run the campaign that we've that we want to run and feel good about. So that that feels good. Awesome. Well, I know you have the you have the Bernie Sanders endorsement, but even more important, you have the left anchor endorsement. Isn't that right, Ryan? Yeah, yeah, we we can uh you know, we'll we'll break our five hundred one C four pledge. You know, and, and uh, discount all our dark money donors. Um, but yeah, we we definitely wish you the best of luck. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I guess we should probably let you go. But uh, yeah, Nikhil Saval, the the election uh, for the, for those who maybe happen to live in the first district, uh, the election is on. June 2nd, if you haven't already sent in your mail-in ballot, make sure to, to, to tick that checkbox there. And uh, yeah, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks you. Thank you, Alexi. Thank you for thank you for having me. This was great. It was really great to talk about and to go deep about especially about policy and all that stuff. So thank you. Absolutely. Come back on after you've won, my friend. <laughs> thank you. I will be glad to. Yeah. And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.